0: Guys, welcome to the podcast. Before we get started, as ever, remember that all the information you're about to hear is for educational and entertainment purposes only, and is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any illnesses or diseases. Please make sure to consult your healthcare practitioner before implementing any of the things we may discuss in this podcast. Speaking of education, if you're an exercise professional, coach, or anyone working within the realms of health and fitness, when you're done listening here make sure to head on over and check out our education portal at www.themusclementors.co.uk. If you like us and truly care about the well-being of your clients, about getting access to the best and most up-to-date information in the areas of exercise mechanics, hypertrophy, sleep, improving your online coaching services and much, much more, then be sure to join up. You'll gain access to endless hours of content focused around everything you need to become a true elite coach and get your clients in the best physical shape possible. This is all in the form of video lectures, weekly live education sessions and study groups. You also get early access to our podcast and access to any exclusive Q&A segments we do with our guests. The content never stops on the portal. It's not a one-off course. It's an ever-evolving learning platform designed to give you the best information possible in this area. Head on over to our website and become part of our epic community full to the brim of other professionals who like yourself are focused on providing the best health and physique related results for their clients. Join us and them and gain the resources, support and accountability you need to become the elite of the health and fitness industry. For now though grab yourself a pen and paper and enjoy the show. How are we doing everyone, welcome back to the Muscle Mentors podcast, um, joined by James and Paul. Um, no Ross today, we are Hobbit down. Um, and um, But we are here today to discuss range of motion um, and talk about some stuff probably around active range of motion, passive range of motion, all those different terms that you often hear and what it means in the context of training, obviously. Um, and... Um, and, and, you know, so hopefully it'll be fairly eye-opening because obviously everyone has, why well, I say everyone, a lot of people have strong opinions on this topic. Um, but we're, we're literally going to talk today. I mean, we were just talking off air about, you know, where this is often brought up and what exercises, and we often hear it in the context of bench press, hack squat squats, things like that. There's obviously, you know, a consideration for it in every movement we're doing in the gym. But it's also the... Um, perspective that often it's only really spoken about um in with like with respect to muscles and like the the lengths you're getting muscles to but there's not often a lot of uh concern placed on joints and things like that um which can have some pretty important ramifications if we if we get some of these things wrong so um i know i mean we'll we'll, i'll leave it off there but i know james probably has a fair about to say on this but if anyone wants to kick it off with um i don't know some, some initial points that jump to mind and far away. I take it away, Jimbo?
1: I just think it's all about active range, bro. <laughs> That's something I've heard recently in terms of people saying active range is a, a bro concept. Like full range. Of it's always
2: weird, isn't it? Because it's yeah. almost like it's almost a nerd concept more than it's a bro concept. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's either active range or, or full range. There's obviously different camps. Um, but I just, yeah, I just don't understand why it's only on bench press and only on a squat or a hack squat. There's, there's never a consideration or an argument or a debate around active range or full range um, or the considerations around that for a pull-down, for a leg extension. But it's literally just them two that are picked on in terms of a squatting movement and a pressing movement. Because uh, they're obviously, in a sense, easy to go at, you could say. Like, it's an additional thing that I know I did for... 10 plus years where every client, every, even myself, the bar touched the chest. Yep. <laughs> like, I, think,
2: I mean, I think a lot of that probably comes from the powerlifting world, right? Where those things are standardized for the sport of powerlifting. And then we all just sort of imbued that and didn't really think too much beyond it. There were the rules, and you follow the rules, right? Like, the, of course the bar touches the chest. Jimbo, why would it not touch the chest?
0: Yeah when, like, at, yeah, when you're looking at the guys who have the biggest bench press in the world and you want to be like them, then you've got to do the same shit, right?
2: Yeah, regardless of whether you have albatross arms and a sparrow chest, it doesn't matter. You've got to go the same place, <laughs> same distance, even though it's not the same distance. Like, I always try and keep that in mind. Like, if you imagine Peter Crouch bench pressing And you think that's going to be the same as Eddie Hall. I'm like, well, then just get them in the same room. This might cost you a fair bit of cash. They're probably not cheap, but get them in the same room, get them to do it. And you're like, oh yeah, these guys aren't even close to being built the same. And So I I guess that really kicks off into the the main issue with some of this. There's, There's no precise agreement on what full range of motion really means there's no standardized agreement on this it's like conversations about balance or health like everyone nods when they hear it because you know who's not for health like or not for balance to some degree but it like there's no clarification on what that means and to quote then i think steven seagal in under siege 2 assumption is the mother of all fuck-ups it's wonderful so and you go like we we build this thing then on a like a you know on a house of sand because we never really clarified what that range of motion of what was, and then we treat it as though it's standardised. But you know, full—I always keep it in mind that full range of motion can't really be truly standardised across people because people aren't standardised, and that's an inescapable issue in the in the in the full range of motion discussion. Mm. And it's annoying because we want to—you know—most of us like in other areas of our life clarity with stuff we like clear answers we don't like fucking gray and nuancey shit well we say we do but we only like nuance in the stuff we already understand because we can then appreciate the nuance but for lots of people coming towards this it just makes more sense to be like of course the bar touches the chest that doesn't catch a rep you didn't get there or the ass touches the grass no matter how long the grass is or or what
0: if you're squatting in a very overgrown field
2: exactly that's where i like to do most of my squatting <laughs> it's just near bamboo it grows pretty quick i heard so
1: no, yeah one
0: of the one of the things i have is the, the, the issue i have is that the, the critique of active range which for the record isn't like um i don't think it's a new concept it must have been around for years i, I don't want. i'm not even sure it originated in rts um like it's, it's often heard not yes but like you hear yeah, physio
2: it, quite a bit as well
0: you hear it in physio circles mat all those sorts of things and obviously mat is, is sketchy in how it originated as it is but but it's uh, it's been around for a while and it's um but it's often critiqued by people who don't fully understand the concept because they think, oh, yeah, active range means you're always stopping short on a bench press, and, so, you know, the bar's always three inches off the chest, and you're like, well, no, because in some people, active range means they can touch the bar to their chest, no yeah. problem, and then in others, it means they do that and it compromises joint position, or, you know, that, you know, it's just a range that their nervous system can't, or doesn't want to control on that day, and it might be that you can get them out of it, you can change it, it's, it's, uh, it's often, like, called arbitrary and often you know it's not arbitrary if, if you truly figure out someone's active range it's actually quite a precise measurement relative to that individual and what they're capable of doing on the day um can we give a definition of active range no <laughs> <laughs> just gonna leave it there okay i would say it's the range of motion that your um your nervous system is demonstrated like a, a level of control over, in a sense, you know, it's it's a the, it's the range of motion that you can actively move into.
2: Um, yeah, I always think of it as being the range of motion that my own muscle tissue can pull me into.
1: Yeah. Now,
2: like to some Um, degree, that's that's still limited a little bit by the direction of gravitational loading. It's still not completely unloaded, but that's as close an approximation. And it's governed, as Luke said, but to a large degree for many people by their nervous system could also be governed structurally and other things, too. But we've got this bit of, you know, can I pull my arms so far back? that if there was a bar in my hands, that bar would be touching my chest. Well, that's going to be different if I'm stood upright, doing that and holding my arms out to the side like I'm doing a bench press. Gravity is loading my arms downwards, almost like I'm doing like an L-shaped lat raise kind of thing. If I lay on my back, that actually changes the loading profile ever so slightly. Might not be huge for a lot of people. Might not matter all that much for a lot of folks when you're testing it, but it's not nothing. And even that, but where that where,
1: where that does matter more so, and often it's forgotten about, is on the lower body. Hmm. So there's yeah. Yeah, it's more range. Yeah, people are testing hip flexion. They stood there, maybe on a single leg, and then assessing the hip flexion with the knee flex. So they bring the knee up towards the chest. The weight of the leg relative to the strength that a lot of people have through the hip flexor muscles um, definitely could be a limiting factor. And you're like, oh, they can only get to 90 degrees of uh, hip flexion with that knee flexed. If you maybe lighten down on the back, took the weight of the leg out of it. There might be 100, 110, who knows? Um, so yes, there can be some things, a fair few examples where people take what they think is active range, run with it, but they're not working in the full active range actually available for that individual, for that client, for themselves. Yeah. Um, so it's hard for us, to obviously, to go through every different joint and every different movement, every different example, um, but we can oversimplify it and say, is it the of so the muscles can actively take you there. So, rear delts, everything back to the sort of backside, let's say so the muscles on the bench press, can they actively get you to the bottom of the bench press? Um, but there are obviously some finer points that we're not able to go into in terms of every different movement.
2: Yeah. Like I was the nicest example I keep in my head for most people that they could do. If you're listening to this, if you take your arm and keep, you know, bring it across your body a little bit so that you've got a forearm and a hand that are parallel to the floor kind of horizontal and you pull your wrist back and see if you can pull it into where you'd be for a push-up this is often still easier to see than to describe I, on- the record, people. yeah it is on youtube but if you know if if you can see this you'll what you'll notice uh, my wrist doesn't pull back to 90 degrees where it would pretty much need to be for a push-up and yet if i put the floor there or i use my other hand i can push my wrist into that position and i would therefore be able to do a push-up And that's that's pushing my wrist into a position that the muscle tissue on the back of my forearm can't actively pull me into. But clearly with an external resistance beyond just that force output, I can get those joints to that. Problem is if I'm exceeding what that muscle tissue can pull into, then I'm going to be having to ride out a little bit on what we might call the more passive structures, which is where we start to get this passive tissue idea from, whether that's joint capsule or ligaments or who knows what. Clearly, some of those guys are helping to control that motion because, well, it's not being actively controlled as well by the force output of the tissue because that couldn't get it there. So it's going to be having to use something else. And we might call then that the difference between the active range and the passive range. It's also probably worth pointing out, there's not always a difference between the active range and the passive range. They can be the exact same. The end of your active range might be the end of your passive range, but that has to be assessed on a person-by-person, joint-by-joint, position-by-position basis.
0: And it's, I think the thing some people have got wrong, even you know, when they're proponents of active range and using that with clients, is that they feel like, okay, if you take a muscle or a joint into a passive range, the muscle or muscles around that joint stop working. You know, it's like, oh, I've gone in a passive range, that's it. I've exceeded active range, like that's it. My my pec switched off or anything like that. So no, but it's it's what Paul just mentioned. Like you maybe take you basically taking the joint. Um, or the limb into a position that the muscles are now no longer able to control things quite as well and and if you've measured active range, you've seen that you know you' you've, you've um, you know you've exceeded the, the position that, that the, the nervous system was comfortable to take you into. so it might be like it's comfortable to take you like where Paul just demonstrated with his wrist it's comfortable taking you here and you just pushed it here. mean things are going to switch off but it means there's stress on other structures that you need to take into account and with certain individuals that's an important thing to take into account with people who are very force tolerant and highly skilled and you know done that sort of thing a lot or it's a sporting requirement you know powerlifters and stuff like that they might have to be you know trained into passive ranges based on their goals and stuff and, and that might take time to go up to but that you can go there muscle aren't going to stop working i feel like paul's going to say something
2: yeah i think that, that passive thing as well like it because the word is passive it sounds like nothing's occurring but there are lots of passive tissues that want to recoil and return to a length but mm-hmm. if you think of a band right when we stretch it, it it's not spending energy to return back that's a phenomena that's related to the elasticity of the tissue itself it will recoil even in a dead person the passive components of what produce force want to return to their length so when we lengthen the passive stuff it wants to snap back and produce force and when we say active and passive really what we're saying is active requires and costs energy to produce which is what muscular contraction actin myosin cross bridging all that stuff requires energy and if you die that stuff stops working but the passive components of your joint structures and the structures in general that stuff you know doesn't stop working a corpse doesn't dissolve into jelly right it still has some structural strength to it and so just because you can get back out of that position doesn't mean we had to use muscle force to do it there is a passive component that is increasing if we've gone past that active thing to get there. But then as Luke says, it also doesn't mean that the muscle has completely decided, oh, we've gone past it. Let's turn off to zero. There's no need for electrical activity down here. It's like, no, that's obviously not what happens either. I've heard someone say before in the past, it's like, well, you're able to get out of the position. So obviously there must be muscle force down there. And there's a bit of truth to that, but it it also fails to understand what passive stuff can do Mm. to say that.
0: Yeah, I I think that's you know it's where we get into it is is just when we consider active range of motion and training all we're ultimately doing is respecting the nervous system and what it's giving us on the day and the joint structures right because you know if there's certain situations where you know we could take muscles into a position but under that load in that scenario it might be a little bit more risky we might choose not to go there and save that for another movement but the um but the nervous system thing like because you know, think about, and those might, you know, people might have seen it, if you've ever incurred an injury or a client's been injured, you know, in a session, you might see a very acute reduction in the range they can go into. They might be doing a, a lap raise, let's say, hypothetically, and they tweak something in the shoulder, and then suddenly they can't raise their arm up, you know, beyond 45 degrees. And you're like, well, that's an adjustment in your nervous system based on the fact that it's now, it might not have the strength capacity to go into the, you know, the 90 degrees of abduction you are getting before um because there's been damage to the tissue and stuff like that so the nervous system is inhibited what's available around the joint and active you know so actively you're now limited and that's an active range of motion and that's the thing these things change all the time so i think that's another thing people misunderstand i've tested it once therefore
2: i've always
0: they might like test their active range on a hip abduction machine, for instance, let's say, or an abduction machine. That's like, interesting
2: that that's what Luke decided to use as a reference, just people yeah, pulling it. the groin apart.
0: Huh? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, okay, well, you could, you could talk about on a bench press. But no, hip, no,
2: you've stuck with the abduction now. Hip abduction.
0: <laughs> so when people go on a hip abduction, quite often the, the, the inclination is to get on it and and just jack that thing as wide as they can go, regardless of how how much how uncomfortable it feels. They're like, I've got to
2: show the money shot, mate. That's why. That's super important.
0: Well, for those that look into active range, you might get someone on there, get them seated in that position, tell them to abduct their hips, and see where that comes to. Then you set the machine to that, and then you 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 go from there. But over time, if you don't retest that, you might find that as the muscles around their hips get stronger, their adductors, their abductors that range that they can actively move into increases because there's less inhibition in the nervous system. There's more strength in some of those tissues. So it's safe the the nervous system feels safer to kind of explore some of those new ranges. And I think that's, that's an important thing for people that use active range that it's not a, a a one-time thing. Um, Sometimes you, you might get to that point where you're like, okay, I've, I've kind of, Increase range of the available range of motion around this joint as much as I can and now we're just limited by structure and that's not going to get any any greater the sense of your hip might be built in a certain way that only ever allows you so much abduction um which is why some people can do the splits and some people can't for the record um that's the thing if people think for when you know people are built the same then everyone should be able to do the splits and all the side splits like that's just not the case (laughs) but the um yeah, so it, it, that's the thing. If you're going to use this stuff, you've got to take into account the fact that it's a, it's a changing, you know, a dynamic concept and, um, and it requires further investigation. And if you if you decide to apply it to yourself and your clients, it's not a one-time thing. Anything you'd add there? Just to go
1: back to your, your point in terms of um, if we go through a full range in the bench press, muscles turning off. Sometimes it's for a lot of people... That we're not talking about the Eddie Halls. We're not talking about the B packs within this discussion so much because when they get to a point that bar is going to hit their chest before maybe they've actually reached their end range or active range. But for a lot of other people, it's like, well, what's the goal of the exercise? If it's to work chest, predominantly work the pecs, they may have available range, someone like myself. I've got a fair bit of range through my shoulder, but there gets to a point where my pecs are going to do less of the job than maybe I'd optimally want. If that's the focus of the challenge and it's going to be more an anterior delt, the lower I go. So it's understanding the individual's muscle bulk, understanding the individual's rib cage thickness, understanding the individual's ability and skill to contract the goal muscle in that bottom part of the range. A lot of the clientele that we work with might not have the ability to contract their chest in a fully stretched position. So do we need to regress the actual range they've got available and stop them an inch, two inches short for a week, two, three, four, five weeks, and then slowly try and progress that and develop that. As we're also working on other stabilizing muscles, everything, maybe rear delts, traps, rhomboids, everything posteriorly um, to try and maybe increase the potential range if there is a limitation there as well. Um, So just knowing that for a lot of the average Jane or John or whatever that we're probably going to be training, they haven't got this big thick rib curl rib cage with this extra load of tissue bulk on top that when they get to the bottom of the bench press, they've still got close to a 90 degree force angle of the pec pulling the arm across the body. If you go and look at Eddie Hall bench press, the the range of shoulder motion he goes to is minimal compared to what a lot of us might go to in the bottom of the, the range. And that's what we're really trying to visualize is, well, what's the range of motion in the joint? Mm. Not the range of motion where that bar goes. Yeah, we may look at that to give a a target to work to potentially. But what we're trying to visualize as coaches is what's going on internally within that joint. And are we taking them to a point where that could be compromised?
2: What's the case of almost a bit of both of those? Because, you know, when we say, okay, well, if the bar does go to the chest, what does that mean for the joint? so you're sort of putting these two overlaid on top of each other and going, right, what's the resistance that this thing is providing to that joint in that position? Because there's also a difference between going to that, those joint positions where the resistance drops off, gets lighter, gets kind of easier to manage than something that's just continually getting harder as you're getting weaker. You know, we've got different considerations even there to go through. And it's why this comes back to a really annoyingly difficult conversation to have it's also why, in spite of the fact, you know, the research is relatively clear that working through bigger range of motions seems to provide more muscle growth. But there's still so many assumptions in those, in those, uh, those research papers that we have more questions that those papers don't provide enough detail to start to answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we've also then got the bit that, as, as the boys have just sort of touched on, by uh almost by proxy there is that we of course you can go into passive ranges for a period of time like it's not like oh i exceeded it by an inch and all my limbs fell off like that clearly isn't the case and won't happen but the tolerance to keep doing that is going to really vary person to person quite strongly. And there's no good answer to like, well, how many times could you do it before it became a problem? I'm like, I have no idea. Like, what are your particular genetics? How far are you exceeding it by? How aggressively was was it got there slow, steady and controlled? And did you build up to that? Was it super fast and aggressive? Like there's gonna be so much to consider within that, that some of these things, I would be, it would be, you'd have to really exceed them to see it be an issue within a six to eight week study.
0: That's what I mean. Right. So in those situations, they're basically, you know, if they're studying, you know, joint, you know, the comfort within joints and stuff within an eight, 12 week period, they're basically looking for, is there an acute injury occurring? And it's like, no, the, the the issues you're going to see with this are going to be, be long term. It's going to happen after, after years of exposure.
2: It'll be a bit like, here's not a bad analogy, building on one we've used in the past. It's It'd like, be- well, no one got skin cancer in the eight weeks of uh, them not using any sun cream when they were outside. Therefore, it's kind of fine that they, they got tans. It's like, that's not a long enough period of time to study that effect.
0: Also, yeah, it's also a thing of you know where we need to see how they use the sun cream. <laughs> <You know? laughs> do <Good>. it. <laughs> when did they? They draw a dick on their mate's back while
2: they were putting it on.
0: <laughs> you know, with all these studies are like, well, full range of motion on the bench press. You're like, well, what do they mean by full range? And they might clarify it, but then you're like, well, I want. It'll sp-
2: mean bar to chest. Yeah. Mean- <laughs>
0: but on certain other exercises, they'll be like, oh, we did full range of motion on the latest stretch. You're like, well, what the fuck does that mean? And and how did they control the load through that range? You know, it was like. Do they reference tempo or these sorts of things? You're like, that's not enough because again, it's not just the range of motion. You think it's like, speed of movement. All these sorts of things have an impact on joint health.
2: Look, there are reasonable um, the- like theoretical mechanistic reasons for it. There's a thing known as stretch mediated uh, calcium ion influx. So we've got one of the things that contributes to some of the metabolic changes that we see that are going on is calcium ion accumulation. And some of those channels are governed by whether or not we actually stretch at a microscopic level those tissues. And it turns out when you go through a bigger range for the sarcomere, you get that stretch-mediated effect. Cool, fair enough. But that's one mechanistic thing in amongst this whole bigger topic. And cool that that occurs, but how far a range would we have to go through and with all the other considerations? So we're not also saying that there's nothing to the argument of using as big a range of motion as you can for the individual in question relative to that exercise. But that's a bigger mouthful than just saying full range of motion bro.
0: And I also, I mean, I would question, I mean, it's, it's fairly good advice in a sense to say like, well, you know, if you can, if someone, you know, I suppose there was a video that went around the other day and they said like full range of motion is as far as you can go. You know, while someone's controlling the load, it's like, okay, I can bench press and, you know, I can actually touch the bar to my chest fairly, but there might be someone who touching the bar to their chest puts them in a passive range, but they can still control the load because, like I say, muscles don't switch off there. But like James talked about, it might take the pep. Inefficient position, James' doctor coming
2: James up. muted himself immediately. <laughs> it
0: might, might take the bar, you know, might take his pack into an inefficient position. It might compromise the joint and, and cause some kind of irritation, you know, long-term or short-term if the individual's got issues in that shoulder they might still be able to control the load. But again, just saying like, can they control the load might not be enough um, because we've got to take into account what's happening internally and what it means for the individual. And I think that's where anyone who's labeling active range when used well as an arbitrary you know, approach arbitrary term, they either don't understand the meaning of arbitrary or they don't understand the, the meaning of active range, you know, arbitrary means random. If you use it well, it's not random. It's pretty precise. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it's, um, and, and if it, and if you are using it, well, what you're doing is, um, is, is pr- probably quite helpful. Um, and, um, and, and I think like, that's one of the things like, like considering range of motion just from a muscle perspective, a muscular perspective of like, oh, how long you know, am I getting stretched in the tissue? That's not enough. And I would also say your own experience and blindly taking the word of, of um, you know, people's word that full range of motion is better, bro, um, is also not enough. You know, you need to consider, you know, if you are reading research, how have they done that research? If you are... If you've had a certain experience of being able to touch about your chest, okay, you've got to take into account how are you built, what does that mean for you, how long have you been doing that for, um, and um, and yeah, you've got to take into account all these other things that actually matter more, which is you know the individual, their joint structure, their goals, their tolerance, what their feedback is, all these sorts of things. Um, yeah, those are
2: those bits where, like you know, if we've got someone, as we said, that the hypertrophy research does suggest that a fuller range of motion leads to better growth, and that's fine. But look, if your full range of motion is that position where bar touches chest and that exceeds stuff, and I would be an example of this, for example, and I, for years, just kept bench pressing because that's what you had to do. And just my shoulders, the front of my shoulders, just burning mm. after a whole, anytime I'd get above hundred kilos for reps, just be like, I just getting anterior shoulder burn, but I was convinced that's what was necessary and needed. Mm. And so cool. That might've led to better growth, even in the studies. But one part of hypertrophy that we often forget is to really get any meaningful amount, you need to practically be able to train for a really extended period of time. And if you're irritating the shit out of your shoulder, cool, it might work better for you for 12 weeks, but it might not work better for 10 years. And that's going to lead to different levels of outcome in your ability to create hypertrophy is, well, how well can you train that tissue? Which means how well can you train that joint for an extended period of time that goes comfortably beyond the length any training studies ever going to have the funding for, or anyone wants to spend steady in a study for? Guys, you want to take part in this ten-year study? You're only allowed to bench press, and you guys are only allowed to do this cable variation. We've decided to set up. You anyway, know, that sounds really dull for ten years, doesn't it? I
0: mean- yeah, I mean, we do have some data that's sort of not as reliable, but just in our, our own experiences, you come across people like, oh, I used to bench like that and fuck my shoulders up after 10 years or five years, and you're like, oh, there we go. Um, one of the things I think um, is, if it, I'm going to use a visual aid here, um, so I apologise to the people who are listening, but if you if you want to see it, it's just a...
2: Weirdly, he's got his dick out. I don't know
0: why. I'm of into motion here, right here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, uh, James basically put up, pulled up a... a we well, made a diagram in a presentation on the, on our website, um, which kind of illustrates this perfectly. Where he has like one side is a is an individual with really short forearms, a really thick chest, and he and he looked internally at like okay, let's look at what the scapular you position, know, the glenohumeral position, is in in the individual in the side that has that thick build that's very suited to maybe bench pressing, and the individual who's got a really shallow, uh, you know, thin rib cage, shallow rib cage. Um, and you know, long forearms and all this stuff, and it was like you know the individual, and I would say if you if you look at it in terms of the scapula um so scapula then the humor joint at the bottom of the bench press for the big guy, it was like the joint position looked something like that, and for the guy who was not built for bench pressing, it looked something like that, and it was like, okay, you know those sorts of things you just can't necessarily argue it, but that's the reality of what's occurring at a joint level of when you when you exceed these things. And yes, the bar went to the chest and, you know, apparently we got full range of motion, but they're completely different, um, you know, internal um, consequences to doing that depending on the individual that is, is doing the movement. So it's, um, I think that's a nice way to visualize it. Um, if people are, oh, I, I kind of, I get what you're talking about, but I can't really understand. It's just, you know, you've got to think, there's a lot that we can't see internally that you you can have an appreciation for
1: if you study this stuff.
0: Um, have you got a post on that at all, Jim? Have
2: you ever used that thing for a IG? Uh
1: not going into super depth on it. I've I think just the uh, picture of it. Uh no, I haven't I haven't talked through that one. Well, I
2: think it'd be worth uh, a yeah. worth a little one there
0: or something like that easy you post,
1: you post. i think i've done i've done a number of posts before um on just looking at the range through maximal loading or heavier loads from a bench press compared to maybe something like a, a cuffed cable fly yeah. Cuffed cable fly we can appropriately get a deload maybe in the bottom position so someone like myself i've got good range through my shoulders um, so I want to use that, but I'm not going to maybe use that under maximal loading on a, a dumbbell press or a bench press. I'm going to stop short of my active range, but then I'm going to go on to maybe the cable and work through another 10, 15, 20 degrees of uh, glenone humor movement because I've got that actively available. Whereas a lot of people take the sound bite, sound bite of active range and don't fully understand what's going on internally in the joint, as we sort of mentioned, and then they just run with that. It's the same thing with the banding because that's a common thing. A lot of people will take, oh, let's top band the Smith machine press because we're heavier at the top and then we're weaker at the bottom. But actually, what is really the difference in strength? Have we really investigated that? Or do we just chuck a green band on because we see other people doing it? It's like the, the difference in strength is so minimal from the top to the bottom, actually, when we start reaching a failure point that people are just going with that craze too much and too hard and they're just rubbing their ego because they can put more weight on the bar so there is a massive sort of select pool of people that are running with this active range thing and then just doing it because they can lift more but it's the same type of people who just aren't going to go and investigate and study and just look at what's going on internally with the joint what's going what does the research say Um, whereas there's only a very small select through of people who actually will then go and think, okay, how much band tension is appropriate for that top banded smith machine press? What is the range of motion that's appropriate for a bench press compared to a cable fly, compared to maybe a machine press? Each one of them might be slightly different because of the profile that it allows, because of the setup, because of where the force is being applied to the body. Um,
2: It's a weird one, because on one level, like... Most of us accept and respect the difference in structure and its implications when we look at, say, dogs, right? right. No one looks, or a horse, no one looks like a shire horse and a small pony or a racing horse and things. Bet they they run the same time, bet they're as fast as each other, as strong as each other. And yet, or a dog, you're like, this chihuahua is probably probably about as good as a Great Dane at a variety of things, I imagine. They're both dogs, right? <laughs> and yet, when it comes to human beings, we just have this idea, seemingly, in fitness within certain exercises at least that, that human beings are like now nah, we're all the same right? Like, therefore that's because you you have to have had that idea to think there could be a standardized range of motion across mm-hmm. the ball with a lot of this stuff and yet when you put it into this kind of context it just sounds absurd and we all go yeah that does sound absurd mm-hmm. and yet no one seems to say it <laughs> when it comes to the exercise things and to my own detriment I went with this as well for far too long as well before I came across and went, yeah, oh well, yeah.
0: Paul, did you stop doing it like moments before we start recording this podcast?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm still doing it right now as we speak. I'm working out uh, on this on this
1: podcast. You have to spend an hour educating Paul on what this all meant. Like what?
0: Oh. Yeah,
1: he caught on really nicely. But I'm, I'm yeah. the first one to say I ran with it for ten years. Gotcha. From 14, 15 years old, through to probably twenty-five or so.
2: And that was in 1863.
1: and Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, probably even longer than that, you could say. Maybe even like... <laughs>
2: Since the French Revolution, you say. Interesting.
1: Amazing. But it, we, we don't start to question it until we have a bit of a deeper understanding and understand more, where you can see certain people just run with the rules of exercise and go with that. So you've got that type of clientele or that type of person. And then you've got the type of person who understands a little bit and then they just misinterpret it fully because they don't have a deep enough understanding of really what's going on.
2: Thinking through the thing I I just said even further, like it's even maybe kind of wasn't that because actually people don't expect, say, Mo Farah to be able to be an excellent rugby player. Uh, or American football, we look at The Rock and think, yeah, you could probably play American football. Or we, we don't look at a five foot a three jockey and be like, probably in the NBA. Like, we accept that different sports suit different body structures and types. And yet, the training that all these sports people do should be the same. Mm-hmm. It's like, but their sport, we accept that they don't perform the same in their sport. So why would their training be the same? Like, Why would the press suit them all the same way when basketball doesn't suit them all the same way?
1: You could they, like anyone who's got good genetics in bodybuilding feels, or they don't understand how good their genetics are relative <laughs> to the building of their physique. Yeah, but I understand that I reached a high level of basketball because I'm six foot seven. Yeah, seven. I am 6 foot 7 yeah
0: 7 i do who it was the other day. Someone asked me how tall you were, and I was like six seven. They were like, "What?" I was like, "Yeah, it's
1: tall boy." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but that's just something that. Whether it's because of egos, whether it's because of not fully understanding the body, whether it's something within the bodybuilding world that they don't fully understand how much genetic structure has in terms of the how our physique looks.
0: I I feel it it is there is that. Well, again, it's a bit of an assumption. And what was that? The mother of all fuck ups. Assumption is the mother of all fuck ups. Under siege two, uh, Stephen. My assumption. Um, and I would say it's fairly informed, so whether it's an assumption, is that these individuals who have that are basically just basing it off their own experience, right? So they've been like, oh, this works for me, you know? So I, I remember I, laughing as well. But... You know, they don't need to dig any deeper. Like, I, I, I know what works for me. I don't need to go and study anatomy. I know that when I need, when I work with my clients, I'll just use the same shit, and that's where it breaks down. I think J- Jimbo has to shoot. Um, so will we'll start wrapping this up shortly anyway. I'll
1: leave <laughs> you to you
2: yeah but i remember laughing when i heard like B. Pack on various things describing like his inferior genetics i'm like <laughs> i was like you know when you hear something like, if you've got inferior genetics then i don't think i was supposed to make it out of the gene pool
1: because
2: <laughs> this this isn't
1: fair i was like I really, yeah, I he,
0: he was saying like his they tested ronnie coleman and he was like superhuman in all the categories that were related to building muscle right I mean, and it was like ben Ben was pre- fairly average, but he was he was superhuman in the categories for like muscular endurance and stuff, apparently, which is why no one can oh, really. So his work ethic and capacity and training was just through the roof, apparently. But you know,
2: even that is a genetic thing. Like, uh, so we, we, it's it's difficult. But there's an old um, saying that in, in sports stuff that often exceptional athletes make terrible coaches and often mediocre athletes make great coaches. Because if you're, you know, a mediocre has to be put into context. If you're a pretty damn good footballer, but you're not exceptional, you're not Lionel Messi, you're not Cristiano Ronaldo, you're not cream of the cream. Cream of the cream is not the phrase. Creme <laughs> de la creme is the phrase. <laughs> the pretty cream. much that's the literal translation. You're not cream of the cream. <laughs> I was going to say cream of the crop or <laughs> creme de la creme, and I sort of made my own one up. That was a fucking terrible Wrong with, with it, please. Wrong with it. The cream of the cream. The podcast is now titled Cream of the, the Cream. The cream. cream of the cream. That seems fair. Jimbo's not going to know why. <laughs> I
0: mean, that should be a phenomenal podcast title for like a show. Like what's the, the cream of the cream podcast?
2: <laughs> but you know, often these guys don't know that other people can't do what they can do. I remember listening to a podcast, um, a rugby podcast, and they were talking about Jason Robinson, the old England winger, who had phenomenal footwork, phenomenal turn of pace, just could skin a person with, you know, with his eyes closed. And uh, he was trying to run some, like, skill stuff for some of the forwards, who are usually heavy plodding dudes, not known for their skill set with the, with the feet. And uh, he was just getting really annoyed. when he's like, boys, you just do this. And then does this little skippy motion and leaves fucking three people in the dirt with their face on the floor. And he was just getting really annoyed that these big props and flankers and stuff couldn't do what he could do. And it's like, it just hadn't really clearly occurred to him that this wasn't something everyone could just do and yet if you're that you know pretty good athlete but not quite the very best and you're really trying to find every little inch that you can get out of everything that often leads to someone really exploring as many avenues as they can and becoming often a better coach than the truly ridiculously exceptional freak of the freak uh one in a million person it's not always the case and there are exceptions to that but it it, it's, um, it's one of those ones that's always struck me as quite likely
0: yeah, and I, then I bring it back to the active range stuff. I think that that applies really well there because you you uh, if you if you if you decide or if you've decided to to you know have a career that involves you applying forces to the anatomy of other people in person or online, you're basically telling them this is how you should put force through your anatomy. Um, then you should probably understand what you're doing and you know what what happens. You know what you know understand about anatomy understand about the consequences of telling someone or everyone to like touch the bar to their chest on a bench press or you know go as deep as they can and calves to you know a hamstring squashing you into your calves on a hack squat you know regardless of all the things that make that individual up yeah you have a responsibility to understand that and i think you know that's if, if you if you go into that realm and you, and you understand you start looking into anatomy you explore the concepts of active range and you still disagree with it, and you think, you know, everyone's fine, then that's absolutely cool. Um, but I do think until you've done that, I would refrain from, um, you know, critiquing it, because, you know, it's, just, it's a saying of, I can't remember who said it, but if you're going to win a debate or, you know, critique a concept, whatever it is, you you know, but win a debate, you've got to be able to defend the opponent's arguments better than them. You know it's like if, if if someone came came and said oh active range is shit they should be able to tell me everything about active range and what's wrong with it and then you know better than me because you know in the sense of and uh, you know, and it's the same thing. If we're going to stand here and say, "Well, 4 range of motion is crap," like we, I would say, we've we've probably explored that concept well enough to probably st- You know, I'd say I, I could have a good debate with someone about that because I've I've kind of done my studies there. Um, and I think that's that sort of thing. I'd say, and if there's anyone out there that's like, "Oh, yeah, you know, I'm I'm not really sure. I'm I'm kind of happy in the full range of motion camp," then you know, find places where you can study this thing and, and keep doing what you're doing if you, if you believe in it, but like open yourself up to. Exploring these other concepts and making yourself a bit more responsible, potentially, with what you're doing to clients.
2: Um, yeah, it's called steel manning a position. positions. Like, look, because a lot of people are familiar with the concept of a straw man to attack a really shit representation of your opponent's view, like a really weak version of that thing, is to attack a straw man. You're really attacking an argument I wasn't making. That's to attack a straw man. Well, the steel man is... Can I attack the best version of the opponent's position? Mm. And if I can attack that and beat the, the best version of the other way of thinking or another way of thinking, because it's not always the other way, it's not like things are just dichotomous, mm. and I genuinely can defeat the steel man version of an argument, then I'm pretty secure in my argument. But in order to do that, I first have, I have to, and this is comes from Carl Rogers, can I first say your argument back to you in a way that you agree with? So often a really great position to start a debate in anything from is, right, is, yeah, So kind of like, okay, so let me get this right. I think what you're saying is, duh, 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 is that right? And find out. And if they're like, yes, cool, right. Let's build on that. Cause then we haven't built in the assumption, the mother of all fuck ups. We've, we've checked and clarified and then they need to kind of do that to you as well. And then you can build from there and, but that takes work. It, it involves you really trying to see the world through someone else's eyes. It's useful from a psychological perspective as well. But that becomes, if you're going to have, as Luke says, a conversation about full range of motion, active range of motion, well, we first have to define them and get clear on what we're talking about and, and share those positions and, and then move on from there. But one of the, as Luke also mentioned, the, um, so go for it, man.
0: I'd say that video that came out the other day that I mentioned that did the rounds of this guy critique it, he, he didn't Understand the concept. He didn't define it properly, so he was critiquing something, but it wasn't active range. It was, in his eyes, an arbitrary thing where on a bench press you stop three inches off your chest, and that's how it is with everyone. That's not what active range is. Yes, yeah. his, his video stands, but not in a, in, a, not as, in that sense. Yeah, the true meaning of what an active range of motion is. And,
2: Luke said on this this thing a minute ago of like, look, if your job is to apply forces to a person, you should probably start to understand those forces, and that's absolutely right because look, when we've got an architect or an engineer they appreciate the fact that you can't load a shed as well as you load a giant skyscraper Mm. and no one has a a qualm with that and i'm not suggesting we have to be as well qualified as architects and engineers Oh yeah. <laughs> you need seven years of training before you before you take on your first client at thirty pounds an hour.
0: Uh, imagine though, the, the quality, the
2: in the industry—if that was the case—there'd anyway, be seven trainers. <laughs> <laughs> That'd
0: be very good though.
2: Yeah, they would be very good. Um, but you know, we, we we accept again. It comes back to a structural argument. There's no real debate. No one has a qualm at recognizing the difference that structure makes to uh to the ability to tolerate forces. If I've got things made out of paper, they don't tolerate stuff, generally speaking, as well as if I make them out of brick or steel. And then how I arrange those structures dictates how well they can support forces in differing directions. The human body is no different to that. And there are differences in our structure. And if there are differences in our structure, then there must be differences in our ability to tolerate forces, because that is one of the outcomes of structural differences. And we just don't appreciate that as well as we need to. And as we say, when we see it across sports, it makes sense. When we talk to architects and engineers about different buildings, it makes sense. And we just don't see it in those terms as well as we need to when it comes to in the gym, which is weird because we see the difference in sport, but we don't see the difference in the gym. Oh, maybe the bench press doesn't suit everyone. But no one has a problem going, maybe the shot put doesn't suit everyone. (laughs) Like, hopefully this will slowly start to change.
0: And it's, um, yeah, I mean... Said that perfectly. There's nothing else I'd add there. Um sweet. But it, I mean the only way it's gonna change is if people take it you know upon themselves to to push their push the boundaries of what they currently know and explore yeah. and where day can- by day. Huh? Day
2: by day. Hopefully. And
0: where can they do that, Paul? <laughs> so if you
2: guys go to N1, um <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> he's gonna hate the fact that's in the podcast right now. No. no, uh so you can actually, as Luke suggests. The muscle mentors, we ourselves have either our education portal. But honestly, the best place to come and, and do this stuff where you can really experience it rather than just hearing. Because active range is one of those ones that's best experienced in person, hands on.
0: Say, There's a lot of stuff that we mentioned here, like where I pulled out that visual aid, you know, if you can see this stuff, experience it. You know, be the mm. person that's having their active range tested and maybe manipulated all these sorts of things. You'll you, you get it. You, it'll click way more than what you're just hearing on a podcast.
2: If we're getting hands-on with a person in front of us. And, we do, and this is one of the things we do in the practical camps is we'll get hands-on and you'll get to experience testing people and different people and their active ranges in something like a press and going, can you actually feel the difference in this person's force production from here to here? Is it different from this guy and this guy? Does this mean this person could get it to the chest and this person couldn't? Like Is there a difference on the right side to the left side? Get to play with all of that stuff and you will feel it. And that is something that you go, oh, shit, there's like a light bulb moment.
0: Yeah. So so for those that are keen to explore this, um, we're going to plug our practical camps now. October 2nd and 3rd, so in what, just over a month's time to be fair. um, uh, We are doing another level one practical camp where you guys will have to kind of explore this stuff um and actually learn it and experience it in person which is the best place to do it um so i'll be putting the link for that in the uh in the show notes in the in the in the like what the bio on youtube um so i would say click through to that check it out and hopefully we guys will see you in birmingham um in october because yeah it's it's one of the best places you could probably come to learn it and it will make you better and as if there's anyone who's who's listen to this podcast since the first time they've come across this or they're kind of relatively uncertain of so what we've talked about, podcasts are a good place to obviously introduce you to concepts like that. But the place to actually figure out what it means, how it applies, how it makes you better as a coach is, is in-person, in practical scenarios like that. So, um, By the
2: way, one of these things with, say, testing an active range, it's pretty quick. Oh, yeah. I can bosh it out in 20 seconds with someone.
0: Yeah. So, um, and that's, just, that's not all we do. For the record so there's there's a ton of other
2: stuff. <laughs> yeah we just spend a weekend just doing active range of motion there's a, there's a ton of
0: other stuff but all around mechanics you know you know exercise mechanics which is basically the study of forces and how they apply to anatomy so it will and it will probably level you up in quite a cool way um so hopefully see you guys there but that's um yeah so that's that's that plug plug over for the record plug over. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding i'm going to plug it some more um but no that's pretty much it anything else you would um you'd want to add on that no
2: i think we've covered everything that needs to to be covered there
0: i mean we basically just just discussed the concept of you know range of motion there and and all the different variations and and obviously we could talk about it in the context of loads of exercise but this would be a seven hour podcast um people want that then let me know um i don't even want
2: that that's seven hours <laughs> a long
0: time to podcast. <laughs> uh, but no so um yeah if there's nothing else then um we'll wrap it up there and and um i will see you along with paul and jimbo um on the next well hopefully jimbo possibly ross who knows um on the next Master mentors podcast so thank you for listening everyone thank you paul thanks
3: up jimbo where it is. Thank you for listening to the Muscle Mentors podcast. Just a quick shout out to our sponsors who support the channel and everything we do in the realms of education and coaching within the industry. Firstly, our original sponsor, Supplement Needs. They've been with us from the start. If you're seeking the highest quality supplements on the market, particularly organ support and health orientated products, you can use code Muscle Mentors at checkout for 10% off your order. Precision Prep, our recently introduced food preparation partner, delivering the finest quality meal prep across the UK featuring their new pro prep range a concept closely developed with us to solve an issue we see day to day with time limitations and nutritional compromise. If you're seeking the highest quality nutrition delivered to your door for the best price, look no further use code MuscleMentals at checkout for 15% off your first order and 10% thereafter. And lastly, raw optics, the highest grade blue lock blue light blocking glasses on the market with the slickest style. In a world filled with artificial light, particularly those with high screen time, I can certainly say I'm one of them. These can be a real game changer for sleep quality and recovery, something we use personally on a day-to-day basis. Grab yourself a pair by using code MUSCLEMENTALS at checkout for money off all orders. Once again, thank you for your continued support. Until next time.